When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, I mean, Toni Morrison used to say, if you can't find the book you want to read, then you need to write it. I didn't have like a book or a TV show or a movie that I could look to and see myself in. You know, I was a half Asian, chubby, closeted kid. Like, who am I looking up to in 1995? Seeing someone that I, I could relate to in some way outside of my world was so important to me because it gave me hope that I was like, oh, I'm not stuck in this yeah, this yeah. awful bubble. My name is Mike Corrado, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking with Mike Corrado, an award-winning author and illustrator of more than a few amazing kids' books, as well as the more recent graphic novel, Flamer, which is a must-read, no matter your age, gender, or sexual orientation. Mike's children's books include the Little Elliot series about an adorable polka-dotted elephant. Little Elliot stories were first discovered years ago by my now six-year-old daughter, and we both love reading them together. Uh, the stories are elegant and beautifully illustrated, but there's a much deeper sentiment just beneath the surface that'll appeal to parents and kids alike. In fact, when my daughter found out that I was talking to Mike today, she made me ask him a very special question. Mike's also created beautiful kid stories like Where is Being a Bear? He's co-created and illustrated other moving and important stories like Worm Loves Worm, What If, and The Power of One. And in October, he'll be releasing the book What Are You? alongside Christian Trimmer. And then there's Flamer. Mike's 2020 debut graphic novel, which I actually first discovered when I first heard Mike talking to our friend of the pod, Stephen Wakabayashi, on Stephen's podcast, Yellow Glitter. Mike's story moved me so much that uh, I didn't really need an excuse to run out and pick up Flamer immediately. Someone else more accomplished than me summarized it best when they said that this book will save lives. Flamer's a semi-autobiographical graphic novel set in the year 1995 at a Boy Scout summer camp. It tells the story of a young teen, Aiden, who is bullied for being who he is. But the story goes much deeper and hits a lot of notes and nerves um, that are important and sometimes all too familiar, um, whatever your identity is. Also, there's a liberal mention of the X-Men, the Lord of the Rings, Nirvana, and more than a few fart jokes. Uh, look, Flamer isn't just a must-read book for those of us who can relate, but it's one that we should all really take in to gain greater empathy for all the people around us. That, that's what this pod's about. Mike is a very important voice that I hope will continue to make great work for all of us to enjoy together. So while Sharon's off literally talking to someone in the Biden administration right now, we hope you'll enjoy my conversation with our new friend, Mike Corrado. 
Mike, welcome to the pod. Thanks for coming, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. In my household with my daughter, you are quite famous. Uh, And I actually (laughs) do have a question for my daughter later on. But I don't know if everyone really knows you, but I guess the question folks want to know is, um, where are you from? Oh, oh, that old question. Um, where am I? Never from? heard it before, have you? No, never. Uh, geez, there are so many answers I can give. What's the first answer you give when you get asked uh, on the, the street? The first or? answer I give is I'm from New York, <laughs> and then of course, yeah, what's people are like, oh, "Where are you really from?" I was like, "I'm from my mom." <laughs> That's where I came from. No, I always the right answer. Yeah, usually now it's like you know, a company with an eye roll, but yeah, or I'll get the. Uh, the question, oh, the, here's a segue for plugging my new book. I'll get the question, what are you? Because you're not a person, right? <laughs> I'm not. I'm I'm a, I'm a thing. I'm a what? I'm like, well, not cousin it. So I illustrated a book that was written by Christian Trimmer that's called mm-hmm. What Are You? That's coming out in October. It's a picture book mm-hmm. and it deals with this whole thing. Mm-hmm. But, anyway, but now my question to what are you is I'm annoyed. <laughs> but but to answer, because because... Because we're both modern minorities, I can tell you that I am half Filipino, half Irish, first generation on my Filipino side, my dad's side, and second generation on my mother's side, the Irish side. Yeah. And so did you grow up in the New York area, like in the the burbs? Yeah, I grew up in the New York burbs. I went to school upstate, and then I moved to Seattle for 10 years after college. Then moved to Brooklyn for three years, and now I'm in Western Massachusetts for, oh my gosh, almost six years, which is wild to me. Yeah, time time tends to fly. The older yeah, we get. yeah. I I guess growing up, you know, both of my parents were Indian, but you know, my daughter is mixed. Mm-hmm. What was that like, I, identity wise? Did you identify as Filipino because you were passing as one? Did you identify with your Irish heritage with on the other side of your family? Like, or was it kind of an even mix at home with mom and dad? Yeah, I I always made a point of owning both of those identities. My dad was an immigrant. My grandmother was an immigrant and we lived with her. So mm-hmm. I I had this like really solid understanding of like, oh no, I'm all of these things. <laughs> and I would I would get very fiercely defensive about it. I mean, I still do. <laughs> yeah. People, I I remember, for example, like even trying to belong to either of those groups sometimes can be fraught. I mean, well, because to either of those kid. groups, you might not be enough. Yeah, not. exactly. So, like, I remember being a kid and like mentioning I was going to St. Patrick's Day parade, and this girl like a white girl in my class was like, why would you go to the St. Patrick's Day Parade? Yeah. And I was like, okay, first of all, anyone can go to the St. Patrick's yeah, Day Parade. Yeah, why wouldn't you go? <laughs> <laughs> what what on earth? And also, it's like, I'm Irish. And it's so funny how many times when I tell people like, oh, I'm Irish. And they're like, ah, ha, ha, ha. And then I have like total deadpan stone face, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm I- Irish. And they're like, oh, 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 you know? And like the backpedaling is like furious. And I'm like, Mm-hmm. But even even like usually Filipino folks can clock me, but <laughs> every now and then there's one that okay, I'll back that up. Man. Why why can Filipino people clock you? So I, to speak? I you know I never ask, but I feel like I'm pretty good at <laughs> um, clocking some 
some pop of Filipinos too, but nice. I don't know. Maybe it's the nose. I don't know. But <laughs> the nose, nose. But yeah, I remember in high school talking about like, oh, my dad's in the Philippines right now. And I was talking to these girls and one of them was Filipino. And she's like, why is your dad in the Philippines? I'm like, I'm Filipino. And she looked gagged. She was like, what? I'm like, yeah, I'm half. That was a funny thing. Like I would meet other Filipino kids and they were so obsessed with me being halfsies. Well, I think with my best friend as a child was a half Indian, half white kid. Uh-huh. And for me, Raj was the coolest and here <laughs> for, for other reasons, right? But as Asian kids in America, like you want to fit in. You yeah. want to be, I mean, I hate to say it. I grew up in Alabama. I, I was ashamed of the ethnic identity mm-hmm. sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. I've grown into it. I'm good now, right? But I felt like he could walk both worlds. I, mm-hmm. I've never talked to him about like, how was that hard for you? Like harder, right? right? But he was closer to being white than I was. Mm-hmm. So was was that what that was from the Filipino kids yeah, that you hung out with? I think so. I think some of them were really envious about me being Hapa. And is that the word for mixed in uh, Tagalog? No, actually, it's a Japanese term that's kind of been widely embraced by a lot of mixed Asian people. So it means half in Japanese and it they use it to describe like someone who's half culturally or ethnically Japanese and something else. But is it is it half? I hate to say it. Is it half Asian, half white or is it half? No, it doesn't Asian have, have anything. It's, it's Asian mix. Yeah, Asian okay. mix. So it could be. Oh, good anything. to know. Yeah. Um, actually, there's an amazing book called, I think it's just called Hapa. I'm going to look it up. Cool. We'll put that in the show like notes. A, it's like a photo book. Yeah, it's called Part Asian 100% Hapa. And I found this book when I was in my 20s. Uh, so that was a minute ago. But. <laughs> Yeah, We're all young actually, on this podcast. Uh, co-authored by Sean Lennon. Hmm. And it's all photographs of all these different mixed Asian people. And it meant so much to me. It was like the first time I was like, I've never seen something like this before. And so I've like cherished this book since my 20s. So check that out. But it's funny because my daughter, um, she's half Indian, half Chinese, right? Uh-huh. And so she has... Papa, I guess. Yeah. But it's so funny because she's like 100% Asian American. She's 100% Asian. Yeah. Different parts of the continent, to be clear. Yeah. Very different parts. But she's American. I mean, and that's, we, we're all, you live here, you're kind of American. It kind of, the culture kind of seeps into you, right? Like right. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. That's the funny thing. I, I don't know if you have family back in Asia, but it's interesting when I'm in Asia, I'm the American person. Oh my right? God. And when yeah. I'm here, I'm the Asian person. Actually here, I'm also very often mistake people mistake my ethnicity and they'll make assumptions that I'm Latino or yeah. uh, right. Native American. Because you don't look fully or, Filipino by Filipino standards, right? Yeah, but I just mean like, not just by Philippines, but just any American looking at me, it's kind of... I think it's the mustache uh, well, I definitely did not always have a mustache, but, and sometimes other ethnic groups claim me, you know, other. Who wouldn't? You're a catch, man. We all want you on our team. <laughs> well, thank you. But yeah, so people often mistake, mistake me for Latino, especially with my last name yeah, because yeah. Filipino last names are so often, you know, they sound, they are Spanish names. Well, um, what's interesting, we we had a conversation um, that would have just aired as a, we're recording this with Gabby Burbe. Um, she's half Filipino, 
and something have something else. Uh-huh. Uh, and she's an NPR uh, Atlantic WNYC um, journalist who did a, a piece on spam, a study on spam, not just in Asia but in America as well. Mm. And she actually talks about that. Uh, there's a book she read that's something about like. And again, it's this is literally the name of the book, so I'll mm. probably get myself in trouble saying this. But it's Filipinos are the Latinos of Asia was kind oh, of the yeah. premise. Oh yeah, actually, that's like on some list of books I've been meaning to read. So <laughs> yeah, thanks for reminding me about it. Yeah. So it sounds like there were Filipino in your Filipino folks in your life, c- community wise, not beyond your family. What was what was that interaction with? Was it like some weekends you'd hang with the Filipino crowd, the other? Weekends, you'd hang out with the quote-unquote Irish-American crowd, or was it just kind of your parents hung out with whoever? Yeah, no, it wasn't. We we didn't really belong to ethnic communities like that. I mean, I went to school. I was glad that I went to school with a handful of other Filipino kids, and that's that was kind of the extent of it. I mean, I was good friends with one of them. So mm-hmm. she and I would hang out sometimes um, mm-hmm. and we're still friends. Shout out to Michelle. But, and where I grew up, it was very Irish and Italian. So there were just like a, a lot of those folks. And even though we were Irish, my mom, so after my grandmother passed away, mm-hmm. my mom didn't really have a lot of family nearby. And her best friend, who's Italian, her family really took her in. and so. Um, we were always included in all their holidays and and family occasions. So, mm. you know, I also was brought up with all of this Italian tradition. So it's <laughs> funny. It's like I feel this kind of adopted identity in a way on the side. So I'm a total like Italophile. So yeah, but it wasn't really, yeah, it wasn't really like that. Like, what did you want to be when you grew up? I always wanted to make art. Really? Um, always, always, yeah, since I can remember. I mean, and I would talk about wanting to do other things too, but I always sure. knew I wanted to be an artist. Right. And, you know, I liked the idea of, of storytelling, and mm. but I didn't really, I mean, I wrote when I was younger and I enjoyed it. You did some legit awesome X-Men drawings. I've seen them. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I was obsessed. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought when I was a teenager, I was like, I'm going to become a comic book artist. When I was a really little kid, I was like, oh, I'm going to work for Disney and animate film. I just want to get into Zabar School for Gifted Youngsters. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I just want to get into Zabar's Deli, really. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it was comics. And then I got to college and kind of rediscovered this love of children's books. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then that became, you know, the big dream. And then out of school, I kind of, you know, did a bunch of stuff like poured coffee and sold art supplies and <laughs> Mm-hmm. Finally, I started doing graphic design to pay the bills. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it was 10 years after I graduated that I finally got my first book deal. Yeah. And now, yeah, now it's just publishing full time for me. That's amazing. Yeah. To going back, though, what did your parents want you to be? Or were they all in with you being an artist? Oh, well, my mom. <laughs> my <laughs> Yeah, my mom was very supportive, you know. She recognized my talent. She was the one that put me in private art classes when I was like four or five. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'd been taking art lessons from a very early age. That's great. So she really cultivated that. My dad was like, um, no. 
<laughs> it was like, um, you're not going to make any money. I didn't. It's the Asian parent. It is. It's the Asian, it's the Asian yeah, it's the Asian immigrant parent where it's like, no, you're, you need to. He was very in favor of me, like getting into computers. Like he's mm. a computer programmer. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a whole I'm thing. having flashbacks while we were talking, by of the way. Of course, so uh, yeah. I know this is not, it's not a very special story. Well, no, but, but it's the art it, thing. This, but, this is what's interesting. I, mm-hmm. um, dad was an architect, mom was a teacher, both were Asian. Mm-hmm. And they did cultivate the art thing. They yeah. totally did. Yeah. Let me, I mean, my dad like put his old drafting table in my room. They let Whoa. me go to after school art class. And I took art. I mean, like I ran an art studio in high school, blah, 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 blah. Cool. But then when it came time to like, okay. It was like, uh, let's go do this computer thing. That's going to be hot. You like that too. Right, right. That, that one's more practical. And I, I genuinely wonder, I genuinely wonder if there was a non-Asian parent in the equation. <laughs> oh, if things wouldn't turn out differently. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> it, it actually it actually is really fine. But yeah. Because I had another friend tell me along the way, this was college, first couple years of work. It might have actually been my dad in those like 20s, you know, when you have that start having that adult relationship with your parents. Mm-hmm. And it feels weird telling you this because of what you were doing. But this person, uncle, dad, I can't even remember now, but they were like, if what you love is what puts food on the table, you run the risk of not loving it anymore. I mean, that's true. I I yeah. do think that's true. And it's I have my moments where I have to be very careful about, about yeah, not losing that joy. Mm-hmm. Um, Because it's easy to not make art for yourself. Because you're also in the business of making art. I mean, there's art, an artistic endeavor to the business that you were doing, Mm -hmm. but there's all the admin stuff and the taxes and all of the the, the, the work stuff. Right. So yeah, I feel, I feel blessed that I still love what I do, (laughs) but I don't, I honestly don't make as much personal work as I would like to Mm -hmm. because that time goes towards other you know, re- relaxation uh, methods and, and time yeah, with, yeah. with... Because people. you're spending all your time drawing. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess the it's... I, I want to take a point on that because... I, and maybe I'm biased because I have been consuming your work for so many years. Even the projects where you're not the writer and you're just the artist, the selection of the projects... I mean, we're going to talk about Flamer, like your graphic novel, right? But it all feels personal, Mike. Like everything you do is just imbued with personality. Not just personality, like whatever you bring to it, but just like it feels personal. And I read a lot of kids' books. I read a lot of comic books. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting. I mean, at the end of the day, to pump out, you know, the volume of work or 400 pages of a graphic novel, that's that's work. It's discipline. It's getting up every morning, I guess. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. And I feel very lucky in that I have been able to sell books and mm-hmm. accept projects that mm-hmm. I am passionate about because it's a huge time commitment. And I I know people who are like, you know, some books are a paycheck and I, mm-hmm. I get it. You know, it's like work is work, but it's a lot harder to do the work if you're not feeling yeah. it, you know. So any project, I, I try to find a personal angle because then I'm more invested in it and the work's just going to be better, I think. And, you know, it's like, this is my life. Like, this is what I'm spending so much time on. So I want to be putting something in the world that I want to be there. You know, I don't want to just like get the job done and and throw it out the window, you know, like, okay, next thing. I want it to mean something. 
because also if it doesn't mean anything to me, it's not going to mean anything to yeah someone who picks it well, up. I mean, not to throw shade, there's a lot of kids books that just aren't that good. <laughs> like, and it feels like you can hey, tell I the people are kind of collecting a paycheck, you know, like. Yeah, I'm not walking into that trap, but you said what you said, and I'm serious. I didn't listening. name any names. I didn't name any names. And I I have so much love for the medium. And I'll say the same thing about comic books in film, in podcasts. This podcast could be one of them, yeah. right? It's yeah. It's obviously there is the craft itself and the, the quality of the craftsmanship, mm-hmm. but there is the it wasn't personal for the person. You I feel like we can all sense that sometimes. Yeah, I, I think it does shine through when that happens, when someone's obviously putting their heart into something. I, um, as I kind of do every time I get to talk to an author or a creator I admire, I, I reread the stuff that I already have on my bookshelf. I go to the library and I just literally look up the mm-hmm. name and just get everything because I wind up discovering like yeah. random stuff. And there was one new book of yours uh, that I had not read before was Where is Bina Bear? Mm-hmm. And dude... My daughter was like, "Why are you crying, Dad?" <laughs> I uh, I just I just had to say that. I'm sorry. I'm gonna fanboy a little bit. Back to your career. Like, what was the first book? Like, I actually don't know the publication history. Was it one of your own yeah. pieces, or was it a job? And and how did that feel? What was that like? Yeah, my first uh, trade published book was Little Elliot Big City. Okay, so it was part of one of your creations. Yeah, but I, I do have to say there was a self-published book before that that um, someone else wrote. Amy Jones wrote. Um, oh my gosh, am I really? <laughs> it's Mabel McNabb and The Worst Day Ever or something. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I forgot the rest of the title. I'm like desperately looking on the shelf for the book. But yeah, it was that you know, it was like a very short run, like a few hundred books. You know, she kind of sold it locally in Seattle. And it was just this amazing exercise for me because for years people had been like, hey, will you illustrate the story I wrote? And like, somehow we'll just sell it and make millions. And I'm like, no, dude, like I can't just illustrate a book for free. Like I don't yeah. have that kind of time. I don't think people understand how intensive, like time intensive art is. Yeah. So Amy was the first person that was like, hey, I have a budget. I'll pay you for your work. I'm like, what? Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, and it was a really quick turnover. So I basically illustrated a children's book in like, you know, a month and a half. And I just felt so strong after yeah. I did it. And it was in that new style that I was working on that became the style I did Little Elliot in. Yeah, so it was, that was like my trial run, I guess you could say. And most people have never seen or heard of that book. And that's fine, because I think I've grown a lot <laughs> since then. But but Little Elliot Big City was my first like trade book. And I remember feeling so much pressure when I was, making it because I was like, this is my shot, you know, like I think anyone who has their first book coming out feels a tremendous amount of weight of like, if this doesn't do well, will they let me, (laughs) will they, will they bring me back? The good news was I gotten a three book deal. So I knew like, all right, at least I can do better on the second book. At least there's for sure going to be a second book. Unless it's so awful, they canceled the contract. But we all feel that imposter syndrome sometimes. I feel like oh, I still, I still feel it. 
I, I think if you're not feeling it, <laughs> like, I, I, I think it's a healthy <laughs> thing. I, that's what I've t- convinced myself. Well, yeah, I think I think there needs to be a balance. Uh, I mean, there has to be some some confidence and, sure. you know, belief in yourself, but also a little humility of like, okay, are we sure about this? Uh, you know, I've spoken at a lot of writing mm-hmm. conferences for children's books and workshops. And I'm just like, if you're not crying when you're writing or illustrating, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> like you're not, I don't know what you think that, you're doing. That is but. the most profound thing I've heard anyone talk about children's literature. <laughs> no, because I, well, I say that as a, uh, someone who's dabbled in the creation self-published wise, but then I've legitimately become mm-hmm. a fan of the medium as I raise my children. Like I want not just the book to be about me, haha, make dad laugh, but something that we can share. And I think, yeah, I, it's, I'm not saying every book needs to evoke a response like that, but like film, every book should make you feel, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. So totally. I, I am going to start fanboying. This is the section of the podcast where it's just going to happen. Uh, <laughs> but first I'm going to fanboy on behalf of or fangirl on behalf of my daughter because I told her I was talking to you today and we have been rereading all of your library of kids books. Awesome. And she wanted me to ask you, why does little Elliot have polka dots? Ah, why does little Elliot have polka dots? Well, a little bit about Elliot. He is based on two elephants from my childhood. So I had a stuffed elephant that my grandmother gave me. He's white with blue ears, blue... I don't know what elephants do. They don't have paws, but like the <laughs> bottom of, of his legs. And there was like a little wind up in the back and it played a, a lullaby. Um, so that was one of my favorite stuffed animals. And then I was also obsessed when I was a kid with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the stop motion animation. Mm-hmm. I was obsessed with the Isle of Misfit toys. So it's like where all these unwanted toys were sent. And then in the end, Santa comes and gets them and like finds some homes. And there was a polka dotted elephant on that island and it was white with red dots. I was obsessed with that elephant. I was like, I want that. Why wouldn't someone want that? Like, and it kind of became this symbol for me, I guess, as I grew up of like something that that's really special, that thinks it's unwanted, but actually is. And I really related to that. So I kind of combined those two elephants into little Elliot and the red dots became pink and I added blue from my stuffed animal. Yeah, so Elliot really represents my my childhood, my inner child. We were reading another one of your books after we kind of did our little Elliot binge, <laughs> I think all uh-huh. five in the little Elliot cinematic universe. And... um I don't remember which book of yours it was, but at the end, there's a kid at the table drawing and there's a bookshelf behind them. And my daughter was like, Elliot's on the table or on the bookshelf. Yeah. So, that is What If, written by yeah, um, yeah. my bestie, Samantha Berger. Yep. So it's another thing I personally noticed. So the polka dots are faint. You can almost miss them if you don't see them. Is, is there a symbolism to that? Or was it just kind of like an artistic style thing? Yeah, it's just an aesthetic. Like I, <laughs> I like the pastels, and you know, if if I made the dots too dark, mm. you'd see the dots before the figure. You know what I mean? Uh, so, I thought you were going to say something profound. Of we all have things that make us different under the surface. <laughs> uh, no, some things I I just like I just like things look nice sometimes. <laughs> oh, and there are several Elliot cameos in Where Is Bina Bear? If you can find them. Uh, okay, challenge accepted. So you have to check that out. Yeah. <laughs> 
we have our reading assignment for the night. Um, I got to shift to Flamer. Like, I, I just have to. Yeah, let's see. Because, it. you know, honestly, I think you are just as much Elliot as you are the character in Flamer. And I know, I, I know it's fiction, right? I know, but writers write what they know. And for anyone who has felt bad about being different or being bullied, you know, the need for comebacks, the dreams, the nightmares, the lash outs, the escapes into comics and fantasy. Like, again, I know this is the work of fiction that you have fit neatly into the plot of a 300 something page graphic novel, but you have said some of this was informed by your own experiences. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's a lot. How did you literally do the work of bringing yourself into this book so vividly? I know it's, it wasn't your exact experience, but it felt so real. And some of it was my experience. Some of it was all of our experience. Um, yeah. How did you find the strength to do that? Why did you feel you had to do that? Uh, well, <laughs> so many things to share. So, I mean, you're right. So Aiden and I have very parallel stories. And it is fiction, but it is very rooted in my own experience. Um, you like Jean Grey. I get it. Yeah. Obsessed, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, and who... Who wouldn't be? And if you're not, what's wrong with you? She is um, the most powerful. I think we need to all acknowledge that. Yeah, like, let's all calm down. I mean, <laughs> that's one of my favorite scenes in the book. It's amazing. Like, it's so amazing. Not just like she's the most powerful, but like Logan's in love with her. So she, <laughs> he, he do anything. Him she do whatever she wants. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I love, I love all the nerdy comic references. But basically, you know, they say write the story you want to see in the world. Mm. You know, it's like if there's, you know, I mean, Toni Morrison used to say, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, if you can't find the book you want to read, then you need to write it. And I'm sure you could relate, you know, I didn't, I didn't have like a book or a TV show or a movie that I could look to and see myself in. You know, I was a half Asian, chubby, closeted kid. Like, who am I looking up to in 1995? So I guess part of the inspiration came out of not just the need to kind of work through some unresolved things from my childhood, but just the pain and terror of knowing that things that happened to me are still happening to young people in this country. It's still 1995 in places. Not everyone is accepting, even though we've made a lot of strides. We're not there. We're not. We we'll are there. absolutely not 100% there. Yeah. You know, and the thing is, suicide is taking so many children's lives and it's just getting worse. Right. And so I made this book for people who are struggling with that. And I think a book can serve as a sort of life raft, it, you know, like if it could just help someone out until they can find their community. I mean, that's what ultimately made the difference for me was finding people who would accept me for who I was. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. any any morsel of acceptance from others or or just like visibility, like seeing someone that I, I could relate to in some way outside of my world mm -hmm. was so important to me because it gave me hope that I was like, oh, I'm not stuck in this, yeah, yeah. this awful bubble. Like, because when we're young, we have a very limited view of what's possible. And right. especially back then, there was, you know, I didn't have internet. 
And so I don't, I only know the world I can see in front of me and Mm -hmm. I didn't belong there. And so I started to think, you know, maybe I don't belong in this world. And that's very scary uh, when you just feel like your existence is incorrect. So yeah, I made this book not just for my younger self, but for young people today. I think it's interesting because back then, kids like us, probably more kids than would be willing to admit, I would imagine. We all did feel different for different reasons in different ways, but a lot of us sought refuge in story, right? The X-Men, Lord of the Rings. Yes. Music, Nirvana, right? Totally. The problem was, and this isn't the representation argument, that those were clearly fiction, right? Like, yeah, okay, I can have that fantasy or that dream about Jean Grey or Cyclops or whatever, but there's no way that's real. That's a stupid fantasy, right? Because wake up, get back to reality of everyone being an asshole, right? And the tears that come with that. And so I think that's where this is powerful because it is a work of fiction, but it's a work of fiction grounded in reality, you know? And Mm -hmm. it's something else else you said, you know, there was a whole marketing campaign around, um, it'll get better. And I I subscribe Mm -hmm. to that, I do. But when you're a kid, you can't, it's like, shut up, old people. You don't know what I'm dealing with right now. Right. The, something you said in, an, in another interview you gave was, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing you and I apologize, I'm going to get the sentiment wrong probably. But what I took away from it was, that's great that it will get better. But the real lesson, this was the final lesson of Flamer for me. Uh, I think it was when the, the flame identity was talking to him at the chapel. You are enough. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, that's like, you really have to reconcile and internalize that point, I think, because it's great that it'll get better. But if you can't make it to then, you know, like, yeah. and I think the, the, the power of this book for me was that lesson wouldn't have hit Hassar, never mind the letter from his friend that came late at the end, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. But the journey that Aiden had to take to get there, like, that's the only way you could have punctuated it with that note. I, the, like, the hard-hitting reality of this was, I mean... It felt too real, man. Like, and I was not a closeted kid. I am not queer, but you know, we all feel different. And while I know maybe that was the audience you were writing for, I, I don't think so, though. Like, I think all kids should read this, not just like yeah. any kid who's been sad or feels different because you are enough is like the punctuated letter. Sorry, it's a really kind of winding way of saying it's an important lesson. I think it's more important than it'll get better because it'll get better feels hollow in those worst of moments. Right. Yeah, I I just, I feel like the reality of facing suicide is the only person that can save someone who's suicidal is the suicidal person. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, if they don't want to be here, they don't want to be here. Like you need, they need to make that choice, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah, but I think it, it is, it is so important to know for yourself, like, even though everyone hates me or doesn't love me or, you know, that's the mindset, right, that I was in anyway, Mm. I can still love myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I mean, I really didn't know how to love myself for a really long time. Yeah. But at least I loved a little bit of myself and it was like enough to save me that I loved a little bit of myself and I really loved a handful of people in my life and knew that if I took my own, I would be ruining theirs. It's funny, isn't it? That's that's one of the yeah. 
a lot of us have had dark thoughts. And I mean, there are a lot of cons on convincing yourself to not take your life. Uh, will I see the rest of the Star Wars prequels? Um, but, or, or what would other people think, right? Like it, it's a con and it's a, it's a short-term con to, right. to convince yourself. I mean, the what will other people think thing. I mean, I, and this is a little bit inflamer, but I used to have sort of death fantasies where it was like, like my revenge, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, it's the it's the the Nordic funeral thing with the arrows at the end. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, like, well, now I'm dead. Don't you feel bad that you treated me badly? Yeah, and it's like that's not. Yeah, it's very unhealthy mm-hmm. thinking because your life is worth way more than you know making someone else feel bad about how they treated yeah. you. It's like mm-hmm. I I like the philosophy. And I I heard this when I was maybe a teenager or maybe it was in college and someone, you know, and this is an old adage, but like the best revenge is living well. Yeah. And <laughs> it's like, but now I'm like, you're right. Like I am living well and I don't care. Like I just don't, I just don't care anymore. Or like, well, you don't care what other people think. And I think that was, yeah, for me, that was the freeing moment. I mean, yeah. The moment I decided, because it's a trap to play keeping up with the Joneses. If I just do this, I'll fit in. They'll accept me. They never will. Oh, yeah. Right? And there, yeah. there's a moment where Aiden pushes back on that when someone's like, why can't you just act normally? He's like, when I act normal, you guys make fun of me. You know. But the moment you can let go like, and not care what other people think and being okay with yourself, it's hard. Yeah. Honestly, that revenge quote is the best revenge is living well, I think. That's a way better than it'll get better. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> that fuels the fire. That's like, yeah. Yeah, fuck those uh-huh. guys. Yeah, totally. I want to ask the people in your life, those those people that you did care about back then, but even all the other people that you did know that maybe didn't know what you were going through or, mm. you know, parents can't decode what's going on with their kids sometimes. They know something's up. Mm. How did they react to this book when they read it? I mean, people were very supportive. I think people who were around during that time were... You know, it was emotional for them. I mean, the few people that I was that I was thinking of, they already knew. Like I, I told them when I was a mm-hmm. teenager. But there are other people in my life that didn't really know, mm-hmm. I guess, what I was going through, and I think it was very emotional for them. But I honestly, I'm not really in touch with a ton of people from that time anymore. But I did have uh, some old classmates reach out, which was cool. Yeah, and I, I think more so I heard from people in my life now who didn't really know what I I'd gone through and yeah, I think it's a lot it's it's a lot to take in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. One of the um uh, this is the part that I'm not sure if it's fiction, but it, it's a lesson that is mm-hmm. allyship. So Aiden's crush, mm-hmm. you know, there's mm-hmm. that rejection, I moved out of the tent, etc. Right. He isn't an asshole at the end. Yeah. It felt like fiction, but more importantly, and that's okay, but it's like, that's like double underline, bold, italic. That's what allyship is. Acceptance. Yeah. So the characters in the book are are really, there may be several people combined in one or like kind of represent a type of person. And I, I wanted to show this contrast between Elias, who is Aiden's crush, who you know, Aiden gives him a kiss on the cheek in yep. this bold moment and he freaks out and like runs away and stops talking for a minute. And then in the end, like comes back, like, 
sorry, it just kind of took me by surprise there. Like, we're cool because he was worried about his friend. Um, yeah. So the friendship mattered more than whatever society is saying about this person. Yeah. And then he has another quotation mark, uh, another friend uh, called Mark, who kind of represents this other kind of fake allyship yeah, where yeah. Um, Mark is like, I'm trying to do a solid yeah. by telling you you're acting too gay. Yeah. You need to act like this instead. I'm looking out for you. Other people are going to hurt you. But really, Mark is the one that's hurting him. Yeah, yeah. And in the end of the book, those two don't reconcile. And Mark is set in his ways. I mean, that's the reality of it. I mean, you're not going to win everyone over. And that was like a hard lesson for me to learn is like, not everyone's going to like you. Yeah. Like, I feel like when I got older, I got better. I sort of learned how to make people like me, which I guess can come in handy sometimes, but it's not, that's not the goal, yeah. the ultimate goal. And I had to learn that lesson later. It's like, the goal isn't for everyone to like me. Mm. The goal is I like myself and I keep the people in my life who like that person. Yeah. And that's, that's all I need. So I definitely had a lot of marks in my life growing up. Yeah. They, they seem to like red hats nowadays. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. I, not even. No, but not even. Oh, that's you fair. Know, you I, know what? You know what? That's fair. Yeah. That's actually fair. That's fair. Yeah. Another thing about this book is you structured it in days. It was one week. And it's the longest goddamn week of my life. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've ever been. Oh, no, I, I get camp, it, man. But. The emotional roller coaster of something like that. Yeah. That is exactly how I describe it. It's an emotional roller coaster. Not only was I a camper, but then, you know, when I was an adult, I worked at a camp as a volunteer, not a scout camp, mm -hmm. but a camp for queer kids, mm. actually. Witnessing it from the other side is like, oh my God. You know, and I, and I, I forgot, like, oh yeah, the wheel shifts so quickly and frequently when you're young. You know, you could be beloved by all in the morning at breakfast yeah. of social pariah by lunch and then you know you've kind of leveled out by dinner it's a lot well especially those situations where it's not the routine of the school week you're all on a journey together to a for the days feel different so the days feel longer yeah. my wife and i said that when we used to go on vacations for a week you go away for a week but it felt like you were gone for a month because every day was full of new things not the autopilot routine of our normal weeks but that takes an emotional toll on you you are drained at the end of it i was drained reading this yeah in summer camp you're around your peers 24 7 and you're used to yeah like school hours like oh 2 15 i'm done like mm -hmm. i can go yeah. home and just be in my room mm -hmm. i mean this whole book feels like a letter to yourself and to all of us that were there or that are there but now that you are where you are, if you could give a, a single piece of advice to, to that younger self going to after-school art lessons, what would you do? What would you tell them? Oh, gosh. Um, one piece of advice, huh? Well, I guess, um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't want this to sound trite, but it, you know, if I, I would hope that I could believe my own self. Mm. And if I could tell myself, you have to remember and just know that you really are good. And that's kind of it, you know, mm -hmm. just... Mm -hmm. You are enough. Yeah, you are enough. Um, that is something that I, I really needed to know desperately for myself. Like, I just was so unsure, you know, like, of course, you know, like, 
I heard that from my mom every day, like how much I was loved. But being in the world, I wasn't quite convinced of that. So it would have been a good foundation just to have that love for myself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's not just a lesson for our younger selves. It's a lesson a lot of us in this world still need to hear and still need to internalize. Mm, totally. A friend of mine said once, you know, human beings need a lot of love. And there's so much pain and hurt in the world. And so much of it stems from having a lack of love in one's life. I mean, if your life is full of love, like, how could you commit some kind of, you know, one of the atrocities that we see every other day? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How how would you be able to do that if you had enough love in your life? I don't think you could. It's really, uh, yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. I feel like that's all people really want. Mm-hmm. And I, I think for for whatever reason, they're not able to get it. Yeah, and some people, unfortunately, have never experienced what real love is like in their lives. And that really manifests. And I feel a lot of pity for those people. I think the other, I just want to say, like, to add on to that, I think there's a false equivalency, especially in American culture, of of defining love as, like, aligning love with power or money or these kind of superficial things because they don't know otherwise, I guess. Or, like, fame or something. Like, if I have enough followers, that means I'm really loved. It's like, mm, not really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I feel like there there are a lot of traps. Yeah. I'll say in American culture where people spend a lot of time and energy trying to look a certain way, be accepted by certain people, own certain things, and they think, like, I'll finally be happy. I just finally have all these things. I just need to get these these things, mm-hmm. this status. And then, and then, I'll, then I'll be... I'll feel... Yeah. I'll feel whatever it is I'm missing. I know I'm missing something. And yeah, you can't, it's a, it's a bottomless pit. But you know, I'd make the argument, one, America's number one export is our culture. And so I'd make the argument that it's modern culture. It's, it's an issue in modern culture and it's perpetuating. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Mike, I, um, one, it's always a treat to talk to people whose work you admire. And I feel like I would love to keep talking, but we're almost out of time. Do you think you're ready for a speed round? Ooh, okay. Uh, let me just uh, mentally stretch here. Uh, no one is ever ready for speed round, Mike. <laughs> Mike, what is one thing about you that no one expects? I don't know. I I love karaoke. I don't know if people <laughs> expect that from me. Um, What's your go-to karaoke song? Oh, you know, one of them is um, Weezer, Say It Ain't So. Um, are you trying to be my best friend, Mike? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> 90s grunge is my wheelhouse with a few select uh, musicals. 90s pop, 80s rock. I, I, uh, I got to ask yeah. a Weezer question. Are you, and I don't know if you'll get this reference, are you more um, Leslie Jones or Matt Damon when it comes to Weezer? I don't, yeah, I don't get that. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll send, there's an SNL sketch. I'll send you a, I'll send you a link. After. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm like, wait, is this a song that I don't know about? Okay. I am arguably one of the number one Weezer fans in the world. So I'll just leave it at that. Um, what is a book or a movie or TV show, graphic novel, et cetera, that has characters that you relate to? I mean, obviously, I 
I was into X-Men. Like I really connected with them. Oddly enough, I, this is appropriate for this podcast. <laughs> One time that I really connected with a character and I didn't see this coming was in Ryan Murphy's The Assassination of Johnny Versace and <laughs> Andrew Kanan, right? So I don't know if you've ever seen the series, but when it starts out, Andrew Kanan has just like murdered Johnny Versace and you're like, oh my God, he's a monster. And so every episode, it goes back further mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. his life. So come the middle of the series, I'm like, oh my God, I'm Andrew Kanan. Like I like suddenly really related with this guy who is um, half Filipino, half white and gay struggling with his identity and not feeling fully respected by other gay people. And like, obviously we, we took very different paths, (laughs) but I was like, Oh, I really feel for this murderer. We've got a lot of stuff in common. So that was interesting to me where I was like, you know, it's sad if, if the only representation that I have is this, this murderer but and maybe maybe that will also answer the first question like what something people wouldn't expect about you that i i relate with andrew kanani you know maybe i don't want to be your friend michael we'll keep a healthy distance you like your why music. not we're gonna sing weezer all day and you're gonna like it <laughs> what is your favorite mom ditch mike oh my mom i have to pick one okay so my mother makes amazing irish soda bread I also love her um, eggplant parmesan. Mm-hmm. So I will say, oh, but also she has this amazing cheesecake she makes. I, my mom's amazing at cooking. All so. right, so we're going to your mom's house and we're going to sing Weezer. And cool. She will happily cook for you. Done. She will cook for anyone. So I, I really, I feel like there is some social media thing, like a bomb exchange. Like, just like, yeah. My mom has actually said that. Anytime your friends are in Alabama, tell them to stop by. And I'm like, I tell my friends, like, I know it's a thing, but if you want a really good Indian meal, like... Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah we should start that that app. So instead of, like, couch surfing, yeah, it'd be, like... Mom kitchen surfing. Yeah. What's your least favorite food? Celery. Like, raw celery? <laughs> Gross. I love vegetables. And even, like... It's not a vegetable. It, it just... It's it's fiber. a plant. It's a disgusting plant. <laughs> I, I put it... And I put it in things, like, you know, in the mirepoix sure. when I'm like making turkey mm-hmm. or whatever, it's like in stews. If it's mushy and part of a collective of ingredients, it's an accessory. Great. Yes. If you put that thing near me, I swear I will drop kick you. And watching people put peanut butter and raisins on it, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what is wrong with you? Ants on a log? Outlawed. <laughs> Who's someone out there that you would want to talk to on a podcast? Oh my God. You know who I'd love to talk to? Fiona Apple. She's one of my favorite musicians. And I think she's a pretty badass human being. Like she just keeps it real so hard. And yeah, I don't know. I, I want to talk to her and gush at her and just ask her weird questions and just know I'm going to get even weirder answers. But she's someone I have obsessed about wanting to meet and talk to since I was in high school. When her first album came out. I have so many ideas. It's not even funny. Uh, great. Well, if, if you know her people, you know. <laughs> I mean, you're a famous kids book artist. I'm a Z-list podcaster. I think we can make yeah, this happen. With our powers combined. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
Mike, last question. What does being a modern minority mean for you? I think being a modern minority for me has been about defining what humanity is. Because this constant reminder of being quote unquote other, it's kind of become my mission to show people how in fact I'm just like them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I hope that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's a lot. Mike, everything you put out there is a lot and a lot of good. It's so funny. It's uh, your work warms the heart. It breaks the heart. It's important. It should be some of it, all of it, I think should be required reading. And I just, I really appreciate you just doing what you do for all of us. And uh, I cannot wait to see the next thing that my daughter gets to read, that I get to read to my daughter or that I get to read and cry in bed too. So thank you, Mike. Thanks, Raman. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.